Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In October of 1983, a couple is mushroom hunting near an empty barn lot on farmland just north of Lake Village in Newton County, Indiana about 120 miles northwest of Indianapolis and just east of the Illinois border, when they stumble upon a terrifying discovery that they would never forget, bodies rotting in a shallow grave. It was discovered that those bodies were of four young men who were savagely murdered. Of the four men, three were Caucasian and one was black. Two of the men could be easily identified. However, for years, the two other men were never identified. That's until this year in April 2021, when one of the bodies, a young white male dubbed Brad Doe, was finally identified, leaving the black male victim dubbed Adam Doe still without an identity. How did Adam Doe become the target of a serial killer? Why was he brutally murdered? And who is the Newton County Adam Doe? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's examine the puzzling case of the Newton County Adam Doe. October 18, 1983, two people were hunting for mushrooms in Newton County, Indiana when they stumbled upon a horrifying discovery, a decomposing body. Terrified by what they found, they report this dead body to police who immediately come to the scene. But when investigators arrive at the scene, they are faced with even more shocking and mystifying discoveries. As they search the area further, they find three more bodies. The four bodies that were found that day were three young white men and one young black man, and they were all buried in shallow graves. Three were buried side to side, but the fourth was about 40 feet away from the others. Quickly, investigators were able to identify two of the young white men through dental records. These two men were known as John Bartlett and Michael Bauer. However, the other two bodies were still a mystery to police. For years, these two young men were only given the labels of victim three and victim four. But after Scott McCord was elected as the new Newton County coroner in 2008, he realized that for all these years, these victims were never identified. They were never returned to any surviving family members or even given a proper burial. Shocked and saddened by this realization, Scott McCord decided to renew the investigation into these John Does. But first, he was resolved to give these bodies names, 
so he named them Adam and Brad. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children also helped McCord with the case by providing composite drawings. Because investigators initially estimated that Adam and Brad were on the younger side, it meant that either or both of them could have been juveniles. And utilizing the resources of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children could greatly help solve the mystery of who Adam and Brad were. McCord would also need help developing a description for Adam and Brad, so he decided to enlist the help of renowned forensic anthropologist at the University of Indianapolis, Stephen Naraki, to examine the remains and provide detailed descriptions of the victims. This is what they learned from the bodies of Adam and Brad. Adam was a black male who was estimated to be around 15 to 20 years old. He had black hair that was closely cut, and he was around 5 feet 10 inches to 6 feet tall. He weighed 140 to 160 pounds and had an average build. At the time of his murder, he was wearing Levi jeans, a red and white belt with the word devil printed or stitched around it, and the belt buckle itself had the word jeans stamped on it. Adam was also wearing hush puppy style boots with metal buckles. Brad was a white male, about 17 to 20 years old, with reddish brown, medium length hair. He had a light to average build, and his height was about 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 10 inches tall. Brad likely weighed around 130 to 160 pounds. At the time of his murder, Brad was wearing brown slacks with pockets that buttoned, size 10 hiking boots, and he also had several jailhouse-style tattoos on his right arm. According to a report by Gregory Myers for the Newton County Enterprise, evidence showed that Brad Doe had severely fractured his nose earlier in life and also fractured his left ankle. The evidence also revealed that Brad had been drugged, bound, and stabbed to death sometime between 1981 and 1983. In those dates, 1981 to 1983, would lead investigators down a dark path, one that was met at the end with the possibility of Brad and Adam being victims of a sadistic, twisted serial killer. Back in 1983, when all four bodies were initially discovered, investigators were appalled by what they saw. First, the bodies of all four victims were partially decomposed. Each victim had been deceased for several months, and all four victims were partially buried, face upwards, with sections of the body of each victim remaining exposed above ground and loosely covered with leaves and soil. All of this suggested to investigators that the killer only made small efforts to actually cover up their crimes. The evidence left behind made it clear to law enforcement that the person responsible for these homicides was sadistic and unrelenting. All four victims had been stabbed more than two dozen times, and the pants of each of the victims were found resting around their ankles. Not to mention, one of the victims had been dismembered after death. The level of decomposition of these victims and their individual clothing suggested to investigators that several weeks or months had elapsed between each murder. For example, one victim was wearing a parka, which suggested his murder was committed in fall or winter, while the other victims wore warmer weather clothing that suggested they were killed maybe in spring or summer. Along with this helpful evidence, investigators were able to retrieve more evidence from a farmhouse that was located near the bodies. From the evidence found in that farmhouse, investigators were able to conclude that the murderer had used the farmhouse as a site to restrain and torture his victims before burying their bodies nearby. Almost immediately, all four murders were connected to the disturbing work of a serial killer dubbed the Highway Murderer. This serial killer was believed to have been responsible, up until 1983, for the murders of 19 young men across several Midwestern states. Also known as the Interstate Killer, 
Larry Eiler terrorized the Midwest with numerous murders between 1982 and 1984. It is believed, at minimum, Eiler murdered 21 young men in the span of three years. Many of his victims were discovered across many Midwestern states in locations close to or accessible by the interstate highway system. In the 1970s, Eiler was well known within the gay community in Indianapolis. Several acquaintances within this community described Eiler as good-looking, laid-back, and an avid bodybuilder who was really close with his mother and his sister. However, those who had sexual encounters with Eiler told a different story. They knew him to be an individual with a sadistic streak and violent temper. This side of Eiler only showed itself when he was alone with another man and engaging in sexual activities. During these sexual encounters, it was said that Eiler extensively bludgeoned his partners and even inflicted knife wounds on them, particularly to their torsos. In August 1978, Eiler committed his first attempted murder when he picked up a 19-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I'm telling you that the attempted murder of this young man is incredibly disturbing and creepy. After Craig entered Eiler's pickup truck, thinking he would simply catch a ride to his next destination, Eiler propositioned Craig. Craig said no and tried to leave the vehicle, but this only angered Eiler more because Eiler then pressed a knife to Craig's chest. Thinking that Eiler was after his money or possessions, Craig stated, quote, I don't have any money, end quote, to which Eiler replied, quote, it's not your money I want, I'm not after your money, end quote. Eiler then ordered Craig to undress himself. Next, Eiler handcuffed Craig, bound his ankles, then ordered him to climb into the back of his pickup truck. While Eiler undressed himself next, Craig Long attempted to flee from his captor, but Eiler began chasing after his victim. As Eiler was running after Craig, Craig shouted a homophobic slur back to Eiler. In response, Eiler caught up to Craig and stabbed him in the chest, penetrating his lung. Craig slumped to the ground and played dead until it was safe for him to find help at a nearby house. Craig Long survived the attack and was able to receive help from paramedics. And I promise, what happens next will blow your mind. Shortly after this attack, Eiler goes back to the scene of the crime. He drives up to the house where Craig received help and hands the handcuff keys to a sheriff's deputy and tells the deputy that he stabbed Craig accidentally. Eiler was subsequently arrested and taken into custody. A search of his vehicle turned up a hunting knife, a metal-tipped whip, a butcher knife, another set of handcuffs, tear gas, and a sword. I mean, who travels with tear gas, two sets of handcuffs, and a butcher knife in their car? If these items don't scream premeditation, I don't know what does. Eiler was eventually charged with aggravated battery to which he pleaded guilty. His bond was only set at $10,000 and it was immediately paid by his friends. He was released on bail on August 23, 1978. And if this case isn't scary enough, Eiler's lawyers offered Craig Long a check from Eiler's roommate, written for $2,500 in return for Craig agreeing not to press charges. Craig accepted the offer, and Eiler then changed his plea to not guilty. On November 13, 1978, Eiler was acquitted, and he was now free to continue his dark and twisted impulses. After being acquitted for aggravated battery, Eiler murdered more and more men throughout the years, two of which were Adam and Brad in Newton County, Indiana. At the request of the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, the FBI developed a psychological profile of the killer, whom they predicted to be a white male in his late 20s or early 30s who worked in a menial profession 
and who presented a rough exterior in part due to his self-hatred regarding his sexual attraction to other males. According to the FBI profile, the individual would project a macho image and seek the company and approval of other masculine males in order to feel a sense of belonging. As such, this individual would frequent, quote, redneck bars and be something of a night owl yet live on the edge of homosexual panic, always fearful of being labeled by others as queer, end quote. Because of this fear, this killer may express a hatred of homosexuals to mask his sexual attraction to those whom he sought the acceptance of. The FBI also predicted that upon completion of a murder, the offender would symbolically erase the act by making a rudimentary effort to cover his victim with leaves or soil, and that this individual likely had a middle-aged, middle-class, and markedly more intelligent accomplice in several of his initial homicides. As many victims had been athletic in life and stature, this profile also predicted the killer to be a physically strong individual. The predictions within this profile regarding the killer's strength were supported by the presence of deep welt marks upon the wrists of many victims, suggesting they had struggled to resist being bound and handcuffed. Despite making an FBI profile of the interstate killer, Eiler still committed more murders and more bodies were eventually found. For a while, it seemed like Eiler was never going to be caught. But on September 30, 1983, Eiler was arrested for a traffic violation. At the time of his arrest, he was actually in the company of a young male hitchhiker, his typical target. Both men were arrested, and Eiler was interviewed by two investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team. Although Eiler was willing to discuss basically any aspect of his life, he refused to discuss his sexuality. In this interview, he told investigators that he only knew about the murders through press coverage, but he claimed he never committed any murders. In the interview, he consented to a forensic examination of his vehicle, mugshots, fingerprints, and even a polygraph test that would be taken at a later date. In the search of Eiler's vehicle, investigators found a knife, two sections of nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape. Despite this, Indiana investigators informed Eiler he was free to leave custody and retain possession of his vehicle. Law enforcement was concerned that letting Eiler have access to his vehicle again may mean that Eiler would get rid of any evidence tying him to the murders. So in the early hours of October 1st, 1983, investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team obtained a search warrant authorizing their search of the Terre Haute home of Robert Little, who was Eiler's longtime roommate, who I mentioned earlier, bribed one of Eiler's victims to stay silent. This search was conducted at dawn on October 2nd, and revealed further circumstantial evidence such as credit card receipts indicating Eiler's presence and jurisdictions within both Illinois and Indiana on dates that identified victims linked to the highway murder had been killed. An examination of phone bills retrieved from the property revealed Eiler had regularly placed collect calls to Robert Little's home at hours when most people would be sleeping, shortly after identified victims were believed to have been murdered. Eiler was formally charged with the murder of Ralph Calise on October 29, 1983, with his bond set at $1 million. Of course, he protested his innocence, adding in anonymous interviews with the media that his reputation had been denigrated by these murder accusations. But it turns out that the first arrests wouldn't stick. Following a lengthy evidentiary hearing in December 1983, a Lake County Circuit judge named William Block ruled that although Eiler's initial arrest for the traffic violation had been legally valid, 
His subsequent detainment, during which the evidence recovered by Indiana police and then presented before him in court, had been obtained without probable cause, and that such, Eiler's detention had been illegal. On February 1, 1984, Judge Black ruled that although Larry Eiler had signed a Miranda waiver upon being detained, he had been taken into custody for interrogation upon charges unrelated to the crime of murder, and was only later detained on charges of soliciting. He cited the exclusionary rule as a basis for his ruling. The exclusionary rule prevents the government from using most evidence gathered in violation of the U.S. Constitution. The rule applies to evidence gained from an unreasonable search or seizure in the violation of the Fourth Amendment. The judge ruled that the evidence obtained by Illinois investigators had been tainted because the search had been prompted by Eiler's initial illegal detainment by Indiana investigators, and thus was a violation of Larry Eiler's constitutional rights. As a result of this ruling, Eiler was freed from custody on February 6, 1984, but the term stipulated that he was not allowed to leave Illinois. So, shortly after his decision, Eiler permanently relocated to Chicago. It was starting to look like Eiler would never be caught, and I think it's to no one's surprise that Larry Eiler killed again. The decisions to free Eiler in February 1984 enabled Eiler to kill a young boy named Daniel Bridges. At approximately 10.30 p.m. on August 19, 1984, Eiler lured 16-year-old Daniel Bridges into his Chicago apartment. As the youngest of 13 children, Daniel was neglected and considered a habitual runaway, who had been a male prostitute since the age of 12. On that summer day, inside Eiler's apartment, Daniel was bound to a chair with a clothesline before he was brutally beaten, tortured, and then stabbed to death by his killer. Eiler then dismembered Daniel's body in his apartment bathroom all eight pieces of his body placed inside six separate plastic bags. The dismembered body of Daniel was later found by a janitor. The remains had been placed in a dumpster close to Eiler's apartment. The janitor called it in to police and told police that other janitors had noticed Eiler placing the bags in the dumpster the previous afternoon. Within minutes, Eiler was arrested inside his own apartment. A thorough forensic examination of Larry Eiler's apartment conducted on August 21st and August 22nd of 1984 revealed an astounding amount of evidence. The first discovery in the examination was that copious quantities of blood had recently been cleaned from his bedroom, which investigators realized had also been repainted recently. This did not effectively hide the extensive traces of blood spattering located on the floor, across the walls, and on the ceiling. These traces of blood were later determined as belonging to Daniel Bridges. With more examination of the crime scene, even more of Daniel's blood was found on a mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, a sofa located in the bedroom, and beneath the floorboards of the doorway leading to the bathroom. There was even more evidence found connecting Eiler to Daniel's murder, like the fingerprints that were found on the plastic bags used to get rid of Daniel's body parts, as well as Daniel's bloodstained jeans and Duke University t-shirt, which were found inside Eiler's closet. Along with this very incriminating evidence were receipts recovered from Eiler's apartment, which showed that he recently purchased several hacksaw blades. On August 22nd, Eiler was formally charged with Daniel Bridges' murder. He denied any knowledge of the crime, insisting his fingerprints must have been inadvertently placed upon the bags containing the body as he moved them aside while placing other garbage bags within the dumpster. On July 1st, 1986, Eiler was brought to trial for the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, murder, and concealment of the body of Daniel Bridges. The jury deliberated for three hours before returning their verdict. Ultimately, they found Larry Eiler guilty of the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder of Daniel Bridges, in addition to the concealment of the young boy's body. 
According to observers in court, Eiler's face displayed little emotion as the verdict was announced, although his hands clenched the legs of the attorneys sitting on either side of him. On October 3rd, 1986, Eiler was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Judge Orso, who sentenced Eiler, acknowledged that this decision was hard for him because it conflicted with his religious beliefs. However, he explained his decision, saying, quote, The senseless and barbaric murder of a 16-year-old boy, a killing which was so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard for human life. If there was ever a person or situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges, committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping." End quote. In May 1988, Eiler filed a formal appeal against his conviction, contending that although he had dismembered Daniel Bridges' body and disposed of the remains, the actual murderer was his longtime roommate and frequently suggested accomplice Robert Little. This appeal further contended that Daniel Bridges had been driven to Eiler's apartment by Robert Little, whose vehicle had not been subjected to a forensic examination and whose alibi had never been corroborated. The appeal was dismissed on October 5, 1989. An initial execution date for Larry Eiler was scheduled for March 14, 1990. Robert Little was actually brought to trial in April 1991, and he entered a plea of not guilty. Eiler testified against his alleged accomplice in the trial. However, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury found Robert Little not guilty of all his charges. I thought it was important to include this information about Robert Little because if Eiler really did have an accomplice like the FBI profile suggested he did, it seems that Robert Little could have been the perfect accomplice. After all, why did he bribe Craig Long, Eiler's victim, to stay quiet? It seems like something someone would do if they had something to lose too. It would also seem that if he really was the accomplice along with Eiler, he could have had information about the murders and identities of Adam and Brad Doe. Eiler tried to bargain with Illinois prosecutors, offering to give the names of other victims in exchange for commuting his death sentence to life without parole, but prosecutors declined. Unfortunately, Eiler died of AIDS-related complications in 1994 while still waiting on death row. This means that any hope prosecutors had of Eiler volunteering the names of Adam and Brad were dashed. What they had to rely on were only tips from the public and genetic genealogy to figure out the identities of the Newton County Adam and Brad Doe's. Shortly before Eiler died, he confessed to the murders of 20 more young men and boys to his defense attorney, Kathleen Zellner. Her name may sound familiar because she has become well-known as the attorney for Stephen Avery of Netflix's Making a Murder. On his deathbed, he still denied being physically responsible for the actual murder of Daniel Bridges. He also insisted that he was only the accomplice in five of his homicides, citing Robert David Little as the alleged murderer in most of the killings. With Eiler's consent, his attorney Kathleen Zellner posthumously released Eiler's confession following the formal announcement of his death. Eiler specifically confessed to picking Brad Doe up in July 1983 at US-41 and US-63, just north of Terre Haute, Indiana. Newton County Coroner Scott McCord, through his own family dentist, now had dental records of Adam and Brad. Their DNA profiles had been developed and included in a national database. According to the Indy Star, the reconstruction work by forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki and his team took about one and a half years to complete. In April 2021, this year, good news came for Brad Doe when he was finally identified through genetic genealogy. 
The Newton County Coroner's Office in Indiana identified Brad Doe as John Ingram Bradenburg Jr. of Chicago. However, no age was given. According to reporting by NBC5 Chicago, Indiana authorities worked closely with the nonprofit DNA Doe Project, which uses genetic genealogy and others to find a match to a family member. Although this is great news for the family of John Bradenburg Jr., it still leaves Adam Doe's identity unknown. Someone out there may know something about who Adam Doe was. I struggle with the idea that no one out there is missing him or even curious about what happened to that one kid in their family who was there one day and gone the next. It's frustrating to think that many more people know about the atrocious inclinations of Larry Eiler, Adam's killer, instead of Adam's true identity. No one deserves the torture that was inflicted on the victims of Larry Eiler. Eiler targeted hitchhikers, often transient or neglected young men and boys, as well as gay men and male sex workers. He targeted them because he knew that society would ignore their disappearances. He also chose them because of their lifestyle, thinking no one would report them missing or care about their whereabouts. Eiler is counting on the fact that they would be forgotten, but I'm telling this story to make sure that Adam Doe is one step closer to being known. Adam Doe was a young black male, around 15 to 20 years old, and around 5 foot 10 and 6 feet tall. He may have gone missing sometime in 1983, and he may have been living or traveling in Indiana. I have linked the composite sketch of Adam Doe in the show notes. Newton County Coroner Scott McCord wants people to know that the composites likely are not perfect representations. If someone sees a composite sketch of Adam and thinks, for instance, that the eyes and the ears look familiar, but the nose is wrong, he still wants to hear from those people because whatever information they could have could help them get closer to identifying Adam. If you recognize Adam Doe, please call Newton County Coroner Scott McCord at 219-285-2515. And please consider sharing this episode to spread the word about Adam Doe and the circumstances surrounding his murder. Hopefully someone out there knows the identity of the Newton County Adam Doe and can help bring peace to anyone out there who may have been missing him for years. In Irvine, California, on Saturday, September 5th, 2009, around 8.30 a.m., a businessman by the name of John Ring pulled into the parking lot of Pasternak Enterprises, where he worked as vice president of sales and marketing. Before he could park into a spot, he saw what appeared to be a body lying on the ground, incredibly still. As he drove by the body, he could tell it was a woman lying face down and almost certainly dead. Disturbed by what he saw, he drove a few more spaces down from the body, parked the car, and called 911. Within minutes, investigators from Irvine's fire and police department arrived on the scene. What they saw when they arrived was the body of a black woman in her early 20s, about 6 feet tall and 150 pounds, with a single piercing in each ear. The damage to her body was brutal. She had clearly been beaten, which was made obvious from her bloody and bruised face. It was so bad that her face was swollen and her tongue was protruding. And on top of all of this, the woman had also been burned. According to the Orange County Fire Authority investigator, John Abel, it was clear to him that the body had been set on fire right there in the parking lot, most likely in the same slightly curled up position that she had been found. When investigating the damage to this woman's clothes and bones, Abel believed that the perpetrators of this brutal crime used less than a gallon of gasoline to set her on fire. He also concluded that the fire eventually burned itself out. 
and when searching the rest of the scene, a crime scene investigator found a blue lighter near her body. Right away, law enforcement couldn't say exactly when she had been dumped, but they did know that despite this attack being so violent, there were no witnesses. The cleaning crew told investigators that they saw nothing suspicious before they left, between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. That would be 10 hours before John Ring showed up and discovered her body. After collecting all of the initial evidence that they could, investigators began working the case immediately, based on the little evidence they already had. Unfortunately, there was no ID found with the woman's body, no driver's license or bank card, not even a phone. All police could work off were her fingerprints, teeth, and DNA. They also collected what was left of the woman's outfit, shorts, a top, and a pair of high heels. And then they began the hunt for her killer. To investigators, this crime was an obvious homicide, and they had only two goals. One, to obviously find the killer, and two, to also identify this Jane Doe. They decided to start by trying to identify the accelerant that was used to burn Jane Doe's body. Lead investigators had officers visit 15 hotels and motels between Santa Ana and Irvine Spectrum, with the intention of specifically pressing the fire angle. These officers were meant to ask hotel or motel employees if they saw someone come in with burns, or if they noticed if any of the lodgers smelled like fire or gasoline, or maybe if they noticed someone leave abruptly. They needed anything that could help them identify a possible suspect for this murder. Another obvious route for police was to look at any surveillance footage available from the half-dozen businesses near the hotels. They began watching 100 hours of cars pulling in and out of parking lots, or person after person walking through hotel and motel lobbies, but after a few days, the hotel inquiries came up empty, so they expanded the search to local hospitals and gas stations. They wanted to know if anyone had recently purchased gas and took it away in a bucket or can. Did anyone show up in the emergency room with burns on their hands? But again, those questions led investigators nowhere. The next step for investigators was to post flyers about the unknown body in the parking lot. Who was this woman? And was anyone out there looking for her? They handed flyers out at medical and social services agencies, at child protection units and mental health offices. They even contacted other police departments and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, hoping that someone, anyone, knew who this Jane Doe was. And like every other time, they were met with disappointment. Investigators still had no clue who Jane Doe was or who her killer could have been. Although investigators didn't know who Jane Doe once was, they did know that she had no criminal record. While investigators were following the hotel inquiries, technicians at the Orange County Crime Lab sent the woman's DNA and fingerprints to state and federal databases, which showed the woman's samples did not match any other samples in the systems. This meant that Jane Doe had never been a criminal suspect or perpetrator, or before her death a victim in a crime. To make matters worse, they also realized that Jane Doe grew up with no dental care. This meant it was going to be even more difficult to find out Jane Doe's true identity. With no hits from DNA or fingerprints, the next avenue was to check the victim's dental records. But from what they could find, it appeared Jane Doe never had any dental work done, not to mention the dental x-rays did not match any in the Department of Justice database. And again, investigators were met with another dead end. They had already tried almost everything they could, given the little evidence they had, to try to find her identity and her killer. All they really had left was to investigate where Jane Doe purchased her clothes, with hopes that it would lead them back to who Jane Doe really was. They started with Jane Doe's shoes, a pair of glaze heels size 10. According to investigators, 
The shoes were the main focus because they were the only article of clothing that contained a full label that they could identify. Detectives looked up shoe manufacturers, they traced shoe retailers, and they even talked with every store owner and sales associate who might have sold a pair of size 10 heels to a six-foot-tall woman. But it turned out no one had. So they tried a new approach. They put out a picture of the heels, which were black with a metal zipper up the front and were manufactured by Elegant Enterprise. These heels were pictured with a police sketch of the woman and contact information for the Irvine police to TV news agencies, print, and online media. This did generate quite a few tips, however, none of them developed into solid leads. Investigators then considered a plan to trace Jane Doe through familial DNA, but they were told that this idea wouldn't be successful because this type of search could only be used to track down suspects of crimes, not victims. We have to keep in mind that this case is from 2009, way before genetic genealogy and familial DNA were real successful options for investigators. Altogether, investigators looked into a total of more than 6,000 missing person cases, but none helped them identify who Jane Doe was. A break in the case finally came in November 2010, about 14 months from when the woman's body was found. At the scene, DNA was found under the fingernail of the woman's left hand, and it had a Y chromosome. The male DNA found under Jane Doe's nail popped up as a match for a man, named Zenaido Baldivia Guzman, who was 24 years old at the time. Investigators discovered that this man was a Santa Ana auto dealer, who had recently been convicted on a charge of domestic violence. Within hours of being taken into custody, Police's main suspect, Zenaido Baldivia Guzman, and his older brother, Gabino, confessed to taking part in the woman's murder. Police were sure that these were the killers because the horrifying details they related to police matched up with what investigators discovered at the crime scene that day. According to Orange County Register, the brothers told police that they had been drinking the night before the body was found and decided to take their work van out to find a woman with whom they could have sex. They described meeting a woman who matched the victim's description near Harbor Boulevard and First Street in Santa Ana. Then Gabino told investigators that he and the woman negotiated a price to have sex and that she got into the van's passenger seat willingly. But he added she began screaming when she realized that Zenaido was behind her in the back of the van. Zenaido, both brothers said, pulled her into the back of the van and struck her in an attempt to quiet her screaming. It is believed by investigators that when the tall, strong woman fought back, Zenaido choked her hard enough to break a bone in her neck and long enough to end her life. Unsure of what to do, the brothers decided to dump the woman in a parking lot they knew near State Route 55. Apparently, they had detailed some cars there and believed the place would be isolated. Gabino also told police that he was the one who grabbed a can of gas they used for a generator and used it to set the woman's body on fire. When investigators asked if they knew the victim's name, they claimed they did not know her name and they told detectives that they tossed the victim's cell phone into the street, dissolving one last path to her identification. Seven years later, the two brothers who admitted to killing this unknown woman also pled not guilty to first-degree murder, saying the killing wasn't planned. In May 2016, the case of Zenaido Bolivia Guzman was declared a mistrial after the jury told the judge that they were hopelessly deadlocked. 11 of the 12 jurors believed that he was guilty of first-degree murder. Apparently, the jurors were stuck on the language of premeditation and deliberation, words that are important to consider when distinguishing between first- and second-degree murder. The deputy district attorney, Cynthia Herrera, said in court that Zenaido Baldivia Guzman's actions constituted first-degree murder. Although Guzman confessed to police 
that he struck the woman while trying to get her to stop screaming, police didn't buy that he didn't intentionally choke her to death, like he claimed. They don't believe his story because the woman had been strangled with enough force to break a bone in her neck. Gabino Baldivia Guzman is being tried separately from his brother Zenaido. If convicted, both would face life in prison without the possibility of parole. Unfortunately, the identity of the woman is still unknown. No one has come forward claiming to know her. This Jane Doe is number 16. She's just one of many Jane Does listed by the Orange County Coroner. According to the Orange County Register, while technology is making it harder than it once was, it's not unheard of to die nameless. In a typical year, about 4,400 people die in the U.S. without identification, and about 1,000 of those remain unidentified after a year of searching. In all, about 40,000 human remains have been buried or cremated in the U.S. without being accurately identified, according to federal statistics. Some of the unidentified dead are even tied to suspected serial killers, but others were trying to start new lives away from family or friends. And sadly, some died before the advent of DNA identification and other modern investigation techniques. According to the same article, experts say modern data tracking prevents most people, particularly adults, from falling through the cracks, but the sheer number of killings and unexplained deaths in the U.S. also means it's not uncommon for a person to die, like the woman in the parking lot did, without being identified even as their killers are brought to justice. The woman in the parking lot eventually was cremated, but her death certificate doesn't say when that happened. Sadly, no one who knew her took part in the service. This Jane Doe suffered a tragic death, and her life matters. Please share this episode because it may bring investigators closer to resolving her identity and bringing peace to those who may be missing her. There is a link to the composite sketch of Irvine Jane Doe, number 16, in the show notes. Anyone with information about this Jane Doe should contact the Orange County Coroner at 714-647-7411. The agency case number is 090-072-36-RA. Or you can call the Irvine Police Department at 949-724-7163. The agency case number is 09 13328 If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with me some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. And don't forget to follow the Lost Crimes Library so you won't miss any new episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.